Welcome back to Hot Mama Chronicles. It's your girl, Amelia Auberg, your podcast host. I am pleased to introduce Dr. Victoria Baptiste, otherwise known as Dr. B. Her work aims to reduce suffering through evidence-based techniques, including cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, dialectical behavior therapy, DBT, acceptance and commitment therapy, ACT, mindfulness, and applied behavior analysis, ABA. Dr. B's style is warm, collective, genuine, and non-judgmental. Her approach is integrative, emphasizes strengths, and is rooted in a social justice orientation. Expect direct communication and humor. She welcomes you to explore culture and identity in therapy. She is deeply committed to serving people who have been historically underrepresented and underserved in our society. Dr. B is intentional in her efforts towards practicing cultural humility, uh, non-judgmental acceptance, and continuous learning. She values difference, authenticity, and honors the individual and collective socio-cultural histories and contexts. People of all races, ethnicities, national origins, genders, sexual orientations, sizes, and abilities are wholeheartedly welcomed in her practice. Please join me in welcoming to Hot Mama Chronicles, Dr. Victoria Baptiste, otherwise known as Dr. B. Hey, Dr. B. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's an honor. Thank you for being here. Let's get into it. So we usually start our practice with asking our guests to talk about their origin story. How was the young Victoria as a child and as a, as a teenager? Oh, I love this question. Um, so I have a little bit of an interesting um, background. So I am biracial and bicultural from um, a Haitian and um, Italian family, mixed race, mixed culture family. I grew up in Vermont, which is very, <laughs> very homogenous, but we were living in a very, very diverse neighborhood. We had friends of all sorts of nationalities. Um, you know, my brother is still to this day friends with his, his um, childhood buddies from Pakistan and Bosnia and Mexico. And um, there were other biracial families. There were, you know, refugees and asylum seekers and and it was just a really rich um, neighborhood uh, in terms of diversity and it was kind of an enclave in this otherwise very homogenous state. I have to shout out my single mom um, who unfortunately I lost but um, is with me always so that was that was a really unique upbringing and I think has really shaped who I am today. Personally, I was a little bit, I was a little reader. <laughs> I was very talkative, incredibly curious, tried to eavesdrop on my mom's <laughs> phone calls. <laughs> and inquisitive, and I would speak to my mom all the time. We had a really close relationship since birth, I would say. <laughs> and she, uh, she just really fostered my um, curiosity and my learning and was so supportive and um, just my biggest champion. And so we would talk about people and the world and things and um, humanity and the, the 
the problems of the world as well. I remember watching the news and I grew up in the um, 80s and 90s primarily. I graduated high school in 2000. So it was an interesting time, um, you know, watching the news with, with my mom, I was aware of, you know, the famine Africa and, and, you know, relief efforts. And, you know, this was the time when we had musicians coming together to um, do, you know, uh, charity songs and charity concerts and the HIV AIDS crisis and, you know, refugees from the Sudan being resettled in Vermont, the Lost Boys. And so just, um, I felt like I was really surrounded by and, and intentionally brought into conversations around what people experience and, and in the good and the bad. And my mom was really good at that. So that really forms the basis of who I am today and why I do the work that I do. That is such an amazing context and shout out to your mom, wherever she is. I'm sure she's smiling upon you from above and so proudly. In terms of you, what you're doing now, what piqued your interest in going in this direction? Well, I, I just love people. I was always, like I said, very curious about people and, and specifically what made people do what they do. And I was aware of therapy. My mom was in therapy in the 90s, I would say, and really, really benefited from it. And um, I was also an anxious child. I was very, you know, back in the day, I didn't know the word anxiety, but I was nervous <laughs> is what we called it. And I had a nervous stomach and I, you know, I had separation anxiety um, for a few years and and um, a lot of like psychosomatic issues that are, is actually very, very, common for um, anxiety to, pre to present in children, specifically in a physical way, stomach aches, headaches, things like that. Um, and then behaviorally as I don't want to go to school, I have a thousand questions, you know, like things like that, always wanting to know what's coming next, you know, such and such. And I, I saw how um, really important therapy was for my mom. And I have always been you know, consider myself a humanitarian and really wanted to reduce the suffering in the world. Um, I also, from a very young age, my mom put the biographies of um, civil rights leaders and other black leaders into my hands and I was a voracious reader. So I really sought to, to emulate uh, as best I can in, in my specific way, the, the values of those, those important figures in our, in our history. And so I wanted to help people and that's what I aim to do. I love that and I, I think it's so important how your mom modeled you know uh, people of color all around you um, so you could see representation because re representation matters. Um, so talk to me about how mentorship played a role or continues to play a role in your career. Absolutely, yes. I think that it is one of the most important things that has been, you know, present in my life. And I really seek to try to do that as best I can for others, because I think if one adult believes a child is, you know, special or interesting or funny or talented, that it can make a difference in their life. And I'm not familiar with the research on mentorship, but I do know it exists and is quite supportive of that notion that mentorship can really, really be a bomb to a lot of the uh, social ills that befall children. Um, I've had a number of 
formal and informal mentors throughout my life. Um, as I said, my mom was my biggest champion. Um, I had obviously really like big extended family. Italians and Haitians are <laughs> prolific in their procreation. <laughs> and so lots of um, people supporting us in, in myriad ways throughout our lives, my brother and I, uh, I mean. And then I was in a formal mentorship program, the Vermont Student Assistance Corporation, which is um, an organization that I don't know if it's, I think it still exists, but it's designed to identify um, kids who because of some sort of background of you know maybe it's uh, low income maybe it's a parent who doesn't uh, didn't go to college maybe it's you know any number of indicators that they may or may not go on to college but who have an ability who have an interest um, you get nominated in middle school by you know staff members at the school and my brother and I were both nominated individually to the program um, and we were both assigned mentors formally and then we participated in that program on you know just various college prep sort of activities like you know visiting colleges and you know visiting area businesses because perhaps you would go into locations and you know and want to know what particular industry does or how you interview or things like that and then there was um, grant money that was um, provided at the end of the program which was helpful so I participated in that but then yeah I've had mentors along the way I've had wonderful professors and deans and other admins in college I went to Middlebury College in Vermont and it's a, it's a really small tight-knit community and I still have you know social media relationships with those people to this day <laughs> in my clinical training programs I have had just the absolute best luck with clinical supervisors and they were extraordinarily talented and just the really warm people uh, modeling cultural humility um, and and I retain those relationships to this day that I can call even when my affiliation with the organization um, has ended I can call those supervisors we've developed you know, really lovely relationships. And I try to do that for my students that I supervise now and, and try to pass along and pay it forward. That's amazing. And so, you know, given the time that we're in, you know, we've gone through multiple pandemics. And so depending upon who you're talking to, you know, we're still in a pandemic. So we've gone through racial, the racial pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic, We've had this pandemic around our politics in this country. And now we're kind of in the midst of, um, you know, a mental health pandemic, I believe. And it's all happening like a, like a hurricane. It's a cyclone, it's a perfect storm. And so I just, from your lens in terms of, um, you know, lifting up what you've seen over the past couple of years, um, talk about kind of what you've seen and just talk about, you know, especially the, during this time, why therapy is, needed now more than ever before. Wow, what a wonderful um, synopsis of what really we've been experiencing and living in, in the last several years. Mental health is, um, I wouldn't say more important than ever. I think it's equally as important than ever, but it is getting it to do in some ways. Um, what I have seen on the very positive end of things is that uh, people are seeking services more readily. People who represent communities that have historically not 
known about therapy, not been trusting for very understandable reasons of therapy. I'm thinking specifically of communities of color or even the LGBTQ plus community that has been harmed by mental health and healthcare. People who didn't have access um, or still continue to have some barriers to treatment are finding ways to overcome all of that to help themselves. Um, people are talking about therapy. You know, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I love television. <laughs> um, and, you know, you can hear someone speaking about therapy and mental health in a really, truly positive, representative way pretty much everywhere now. You know, whether it's Don Lemon on CNN or it's podcasters or it's the Surgeon General of California or, you know, any number of people uh, uh, or our president, actually, right? <laughs> Which is unusual. I mean, I don't think I'd heard too much of it prior to maybe Barack Obama. And he mentioned a little bit, I think Joe Biden does speak about mental health quite a bit more. He's also experienced a great deal of trauma and probably has personal experience that he can call upon. So I think that's one of the, the great things. We still do not have excellent access to mental health care. Um, you know, I was speaking to a student of mine and she told me, and I didn't realize this, that during the um, COVID-19 pandemic, that there was a shortage of antidepressant medication. So people who were already prescribed these medications and attempting to access their refills, could not or were getting them at a delay because there were so many people seeking um, meds for the first time. We see in survey research that depression and anxiety specifically increased um, during the COVID-19 sort of, I would say, onset and, and first wave, if you will. And I'm sure it continues to grow, you know, probably at a slower rate, but we are still dealing with isolation and with, um, you know, sometimes people are embedded in the systems that created the traumas in the first place because of the isolation and the quarantine and the economic downfall of, of millions of people who lost their jobs or were furloughed or what have you. So there's a significant reason for people to be experiencing higher rates of every mental health condition. You know, isolation, <laughs> lack of environmental inputs, including just sun on your face, uh, the, you know, like the, the natural mindfulness that comes from just being outside and walking and, you know, the experience of, of anxiety, real, true, necessary worry and the mental fatigue of, who can I see? When did I see someone last? What? How do I manage this conversation <laughs> about health and my boundaries? Um, has really taken its toll. Domestic violence, um, alcohol and drug use are higher in this pandemic. And then I cannot ignore the impact of the racial just catastrophes of the last few years. It did feel like we had a uh, reprieve following the judgment in the um, Derek Chauvin trial, and also I think later on the judgments of the um, murderers of Ahmaud Arbery. But I think people of color and black people in the United States specifically knew that it was just a, a matter of time before we started to see, you know, the same, the same events, really the same history repeating again and again. And the cumulative toll 
that these experiences, they are traumas that we are all witnessing. Um, in some ways, we are witnessing them in a classic sense because of technology. And, you know, even for PTSD, the criteria doesn't meet, doesn't call for it having happened to you. You can actually have heard about it and have responded in such a way that it is experienced as traumatic. And I think that is what is happening with all of these, you know, publicized, very high profile, very violent, very unnecessary murders of, of black and brown people. That is so on point and on par with everything that has happened. And I think what you lifted are two words that come to my mind is health, what's healthy and boundaries. And I think, um, you know, during this time, you know, there's been a lot of conversation about pr protecting your space and protecting your spirit. So, you know, during this time, whether you're working as a leader, whether you're, you know, doing work as a, a businesswoman or entrepreneur, or just raising children that are black and brown or biracial, what are some of the ways that, that are simple to find self-care and to find pieces of joy in the midst of what's going on? I love that question. I really like that you are highlighting what is simple, right? Um, I think we need that. We need more simplicity these days. The first most natural, easiest thing to do is to breathe, right? And I know it sounds like it's, um, you know, it's a little facetious and yeah, okay, just breathe. Truly breathing deep, slow, intentional breath put, puts us in contact with the present moment and also will slow down the autonomic arousal that people experience with anxiety particularly, right? Or trauma or panic. And so it is actually slowing down that activation in the body and you can feel more calm and restful. And when we are more calm and restful, our executive functioning is working at its best capacity. And executive functioning is all of those higher order processes like planning, like impulse control, like organization. It's what allows us to make the next best step, <laughs> right? In a planned way in, in accordance with our values. And I would say that's maybe the second bit of advice I would say is try to identify what you value, not what you want, what you value. What you want might be a goal. Going to college or completing college or getting a job is a goal. It's achievable. It's this identifiable checkmark kind of item. A value is an ideal, an idea. It's much more of an umbrella for what goals fall under. So if you value learning, you can't achieve learning, but you can work towards smaller identifiable goals like college, <laughs> right? Or like reading anti-racist, you know, literature, like educating yourself about mental health, right? Any number of things, whatever's interested. So identify your values and, and then think about what brings you one step closer to your values. I'd say those are probably the two top two, I would say. And I think too, you know, sitting here with you, Dr. B, you know, I always think of, you know, those people who, you know, while, while the storm is happening, 
there are people that have to rush into the storm. And we think of the firefighters and those emergency workers, but I also think of our healthcare workers and considering the work that you're doing in mental health. You know, I always have that question of who, who takes care of the caretaker. And so how do you debrief? How do you um, managing the caseload, whether it's clients or, or students or just people that are under your tutelage, how do you debrief during this time? I have an excellent community of other mental health professionals who are friends and who I'm honored to, to know and learn from and laugh with and sometimes cry with or cry in front of, <laughs> right? And it is really important for mental health professionals to build a community of other people who do the work that we do, who have the same ethical and legal responsibilities around confidentiality, around do no harm and things like that, so that we can really have that space to interact on, on a, a knowing level, right? I also have fabulous friends who I have really cultivated across time and who I know I can call upon and who are, and honestly are the, the kind of people in their prayer, primarily women, but not all, but who anticipate your needs, maybe before you even know them, <laughs> right? And are always offering something by way of support or even help or I have a wonderful friend who just offered to make me a baked good. <laughs> and um, then what I would say is accept, accept help, accept kindness, accept caring. Because my first instinct was, oh, you don't have to do that. But then I said, maybe cupcakes. <laughs> because I like cupcakes and that was a kind gesture and I am happy to receive it. I have a wonderfully sweet cat that um, makes the quarantine isolation, you know, world so much better. I have a beautiful new niece and I like to look at her pictures and get videos from my brother and sister-in-law that just warm my heart. That can really change a lot. And then I do the best that I can to, to take care of myself. I'm in therapy myself. I, um, I returned to therapy during the pandemic um, and particularly after um, George Floyd's murder and just the complete upheaval of our society as a result. Um, the election cycle was not easy. And so that has been really helpful. I'm trying to do more of the, you know, drink more water, eat nutritious, delicious food. I, I need to get outside more and just have the sun on my face and the air in, you know, around me and I practice mindfulness. And, and that's how I try to take care of myself, particularly in the limitations of the current, you know, environment. Absolutely, that sounds wonderful. And shout out to the cat and to the friend who baked cupcakes, won't he do it? That's a blessing. So yes. <laughs> um, what are you hoping to disrupt in this space? Oh, I love this question. My great aunt said it takes all kinds to make the world go. And I, having just said, you know, how much I was influenced by um, activists, especially of the civil rights movement, do, I'm not a marcher. I'm not a get out on, in the streets and protest. And for whatever reason, that just is not consistent with sort of my style. I'm a disrupt from within type of person. 
Um, and I do think that my um, lighter skin, my biracial identity, my, my experience being amongst a predominantly white family and community gives me an, an insider's um, sort of perspective and also just like comfort and movement. <laughs> um, so I, I try to get in and then be the voice that's needed. Uh, I've been blessed with very little or to no social anxiety. So I say the things that need to be said, even when I'm tired, even when I don't want to, even when I'm the only one saying them and there's resistance. And that is what I take from those civil rights leaders of the past. If they can be hosed and beaten and have dogs turned on them and lynched, I can certainly undergo some social rejection. So I say what needs to be said from the inside, which means I join the committees, I speak up in the meetings, I write the emails, <laughs> you know, um, I go to the trainings, all of that. Um, so I am a join the organization or the system and change it from within. Yes, I can, I can definitely um, foresee some per my last email, exclamation point emails, some, you know, what we're not going to do today is have this conversation. <laughs> so I can totally feel that energy from from afar. And mm -hmm. so I started Hot Mama Chronicles as an homage to women in my family who are living their lives in purpose, on purpose, flaws and all. I wanted to ask you, do you think hot mamas are made or are they born? Well, first, I love the title of the podcast. I love that origin story as well. And I find it very um, touching and familiar. And, um, so I, and I appreciate being a guest as a hot mama. <laughs> I think that uh, this is hard as a psychologist, right? Because we're the, we're the people who seek to answer nature versus nurture. And that's essentially what you're asking. Is this a nature versus nurture? Um, and I'm going to give that, that uncomfortable, unwanted answer of it's both, <laughs> right? I do think that there are some of, you know, what, I cannot look at some of those figures of the past, whether they have become famous like Martin Luther King Jr. or whether they are in our families just, you know, lifting us all up like my mother, like it sounds like some of the women in your family are. Um, who don't have that um, infamy and, and notoriety, but the there is something I do think that some people come into the world with that is just a you know some sort of special elixir of the <laughs> biology <laughs> that that creates something really special about them. And then I really do believe that, and this is true not just in terms of the resilience and the the question of what, you know, how our hot mamas are made, but in really it's it's how we believe mental health and personality comes to be is that there's an interaction with the environment. What you go through what you experience, good, bad, and different, really does have an impact, right? And um, we know that it's, we actually now know that it changes your genetics sometimes, right? I mean, it is powerful. The environment is powerful. So I think that hot mamas can be born, 
and they can be made and they're probably a bit of both. I like it. And there's no right or wrong answer. Um, I think, you know, we just started 2022. It's a um, brand new year. We're one month in now sitting in, um, in celebration of Black History Month. Black history is American history, but in February, we are black, black all all month, all day, all day, every hour on the hour, minute by minute. And so, I just wanted to, if you could share what you're excited about for this new year, what are you looking forward to? I'm excited to um, to to try some new things to take care of myself. Um, I have moved into um, a new place, sort of new beginnings. I'm in Oakland, California. So I'm excited to explore and sort of enter into a new phase of my of my life. I'm excited for, you know, I have a, a new a new client. She's 13 years old and she's Latinx and we were talking about some sexual harassment that she and her friends are experiencing um, at school and the story of how she and her female friends have managed it, banded together. They sought out their counselor. They sought out the vice principal. They didn't think the vice principal was addressing the issue. They went to the resource officer. They had, they got their receipts. They have the screenshots. <laughs> And they're talking to their parents and she, you know, she's in therapy and she's talking to me. And I thought, you know, if the more that I learn about this new next generation of kids, you know, the activism on climate change, on anti-racism, on violence and school shootings. And I am so enamored of and excited about what these kids are gonna do once they are of age, <laughs> you know, once they're voting, once they're, once they have driver's licenses, <laughs> right? And that gives me a great deal of hope. So I am really looking forward as much as I also see things that really do hurt my heart and make me sad. The, you know, the recent high profile suicides of, um, of black people um, and also the, of course, the Amir Locke, um, no-knock warrant murder. Those, I, I, those are horrible and I experience them as all black people do in the United States. And I see that maybe the next generation is gonna right some of these wrongs and they're gonna take care of it. That gives me hope. I, I agree with you. I, I look at the generations that are coming now and um, just how, how authentic they are and walking in who they are, they will tell you in a minute. I'm, you know, LGBTQIA+, these are my pronouns. Call me, name me. Um, if you're not naming me, I'm gonna correct you. And then obviously like pulling together and being, you know, an activist and an advocate really for what is right and asking the questions. And so, you know, sometimes, you know, there's a thing called adultism where, you know, young people come up in their voice and the adults are like, well, you haven't lived life, but they're asking the questions that need answers. And so I think um, that is definitely something to hope for, for sure. So, you know, in terms of your work, how can people support you? What are some of the things that you're working on? Where can the audience connect with you? Uh, well, you can follow me on Instagram at um, Mosaic Psychotherapy Center. Uh, 
that's my Instagram for my private practice. Um, and I do need to sort of step up my game there. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I think the ways in which you can support me is to support each other um, and, and to really like turn your attention to another. So I would say vote for people and legislation that supports doing additional funding to mental health services. There is a crisis right now where there are not enough providers and certainly not enough providers who have affordable services. The wait lists are incredibly long for both therapy and, and um, psychiatry services. And so the more money that can be provided to those services and making them accessible to programs like my day job, I like to call it, which is integrated behavioral health, it's, you know, it's funded federally. And we see, we see Medi-Cal um, Medi uh, beneficiaries, which is the Medicaid program in California. And we also um, take sliding scale. The student clinic where I supervise takes sliding scale clients. And so that extends services, but we could, we need more money to support more hires to support more clients. I would say absolutely, you know, that's that's number one. Uh, I think if you if you vote for federal loan forgiveness or write a letter to to your legislators, that will support more people and people of color and people of other underrepresented identities to go into mental health. It is unbelievably expensive to go through the programs and we are not compensated in the same way. Medical doctors come out with incredible amounts of loans and come out with great salaries that allow them to pay it back. That is not the truth <laughs> with mental health providers. And so I think that that's something that, you know, the general public can do. Talk about mental health, try to break down the stigma. You know, you can plug the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline phone number into your phone. That number is... 1-800-273-TALK, T-A-L-K. So it's 1-800-273-8255. That's the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. It's, it's staffed 24 hours a day, every single day, never closes. Right? There's some text options, there's Spanish language, they have the ability to um, assist people who are deaf or hard of hearing. Yeah. And just, you know, treat people with compassion. Wow, that, that's, a, that's so many things. So thanks for giving us our marching orders. And so Dr. B, I can't believe it, but we're almost at the close of this conversation. What are some words of wisdom or gems that you can leave for my audience? You know, there's some people that are listening out here that are like, wow, like I wish I could be like Dr. B and start my own practice. Wow, I'm trying to do this side hustle. Or you know what, the struggle is we're, we're real with these kids and this online <laughs> learning. And I, they have me out here working in these streets. Like I just it, I, I just need to get my life together. So um, if you can just um, close us out with some words of wisdom before we close the um, interview. Absolutely. And um, I will leave you with my favorite quote, which is from Maya Angelou and uh, perfectly timed for Black History Month. Surviving is important. Thriving is elegant. So survive, do what you need to do to survive, and then try to build a life where you actually thrive, right? Do the best you can. And if you're out there hustling, maybe take a break. 
<laughs> right? Follow the nap ministry on Instagram, right? Which is trying to deconstruct this white supremacist patriarchal capitalist notion that we gotta grind all the time, you know? If you are struggling with kids in online learning, maybe you need a mental health day with the kids. Go outside, just play, take everyone out of school. <laughs> you know, really try to live life and create a life that's worth living. Wonderful words, Dr. B. Dr. B, thank you so much for your time today, for being in this space and providing a space of for healing um, for all people, but specifically for communities of color. Thank you again to my audience for listening to this interview. You can subscribe to Hot Mama Chronicles on all podcasting platforms or go to ameliaauburg.com for the show notes, which will include all of the um, tags that Dr. B mentioned. Remember, the road to being a hot mama is about the journey and not the destination. One love.